beginning this evening's talk <clears throat> with a poem by William Butler Yeats called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our mind so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own image, own images, and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our quiet. The title of this evening's talk is The Pure and Beautiful Mind. And with with this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states or wholesome and beautiful factors of mind, chetasikas in Pali, that are associated with the... um, the development and the deepening fruits of insight practice, vipassana practice, and that are associated with the development and fruits of concentration, and also with the development of metta practice. All of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness. The chief as the Buddha called mindfulness. This quality or this factor of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or these factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka or Abhidhamma Basket. So we'll, uh, we'll do just a brief exploration of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. The first basket, or the collection is sometimes called, is the Book of Discipline containing the rules of conduct for all the monks and the nuns and all of the guidelines regarding governing and living in community. And meaning in this case a monastic sangha, a monastic community. Though many of these guidelines can also be applied to living in a lay Buddhist community living as Buddhist practitioners in a family, for instance, or living with a partner, or living by one's self, or temporarily living in a community of practitioners, such as we are doing here in this retreat. The second collection or basket brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas, that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. The third collection, or the third basket, is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has a distinctly different character, a distinctly different quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses and uh, discussions occurring in real-life settings, which both of the other baskets are very much rooted in. But rather, the Abhidhamma is a very clear, detailed, and refined disclosure of mind and mental processes that combines psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into a unique and actually quite remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of practice to actually hear in some 
<clears throat> detail about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice to understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I found this information to be quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, that this understanding can help to counter the fears, for instance, or other aversive reactions that happen in practice in relationship to the occurrences of practice, along with the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analysis, as well as the misperceptions and misunderstandings and the attachments and the clinging that can come up in practice in relationship to what may be unusual or maybe unfamiliar experiences, and even in relationship to some of our more familiar experiences. One of my very dear Buddhist teachers, the Venerable Saida Upandita, called these unusual or um, non-ordinary wholesome experiences. He called them the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 35 wholesome mental factors, 35 wholesome mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful and are associated with vipassana practice as mindfulness, concentration, and intuitive insight unfold and blossom. These 35 wholesome mental states or wholesome mental factors are also associated with the development phase of concentration and the manifestation of jhana and also occur during the development and the manifestation of metta. 29 of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universally developed throughout our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome only if they're accompanied by a wholesome consciousness. Now this might sound a little bit confusing at this moment. So what this all means will for sure become clearer as we explore these various mental factors. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration and also with the focus of attention involved in metta practice with the first two factors being absolutely necessary and active components throughout our practice of insight, throughout our vipassana practice. The last three of these five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during particular aspects of vipassana practice and also during specific stages of development and manifestation of concentration and jhana absorption, and also in relationship with the development and the manifestation of metta to varying degrees. So these five wholesome factors of mind are aspects of all of our practices. And these first five wholesome factors of mind are aspects of practice that each one of you are currently experiencing to varying degrees right here, right now, in this retreat. So first I'd just like to list these first five wholesome mental factors that are associated with the development of insight practice. 
and also, as I mentioned, with the development of concentration uh, and metta practice. The first of these in Pali is vitaka, translated as the initial application. Initial application or initial application of the attention of the mind. The second is the sustained application, vichara in Pali. Sustaining the attention, the sustaining of the mind. Only when these two factors, wholesome factors of mind, are accompanied by a healthy, wholesome mind consciousness are these first two factors of mind wholesome. So they're called occasionals. That's what it means by calling them occasionals. Unwholesome application and sustaining the attention of the mind on something unwholesome is certainly possible. And of course, I know that each one of you, from your own experience, know this. Most likely, or maybe I could say for sure, (laughs) each one of us has at times applied and sustained our attention on various unwholesome, maybe at times maybe even harmful, or maybe totally unnecessary, frivolous or unskillful or insensitive objects of attention or activities. The third of these first five uh, potentially wholesome and beautiful characteristics is piti in Pali, which I'm translating as joy or zest. The fourth, sukha in Pali, a sweet happiness. And the fifth, ikagata in Pali, one-pointedness. So now we'll explore each of these uh, just a bit more in depth. So the first factor, vitaka, translated, as I said, as initial application, meaning it's application of the mind to the object. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. In our case here, for example, sensations of the breath and or the movement of the breath in the belly. Vitaka's function, as it's described, uh, very graphically described in the Abhidhamma, is to strike at the object. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. And it's kind of like training a puppy. If any of you ever uh, had a puppy for a pet or observed somebody somebody else's puppy trying to be trained. So it's like training a puppy. Why? Because we do it over and over and over and over again in our practice. Because the mind is kind of like a puppy. It runs about. It runs off with just about anything. Again and again and again. As I'm sure you've noticed. So we're training the mind. We're training it how to um, connect and how to apply itself to a particular object. Vitaka has the special task, we could say, and the fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, of sleepiness, of lethargy. And Itaka is very closely associated, closely uh, connected with intention. Right intention or skillful, wise, wholesome intention as is spoken about in the Eightfold Noble Path. The second wholesome factor of mind, vichara and pali, the sustained application. Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or as it's described in the Abhidhamma, as stroking the object. Meaning in the sense of staying with it, and seeing and knowing 
how it's manifesting in that staying with it, sustained attention. So it's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind, if you will, on the object. So in our case here, for example, it's the breath sensation and the movement uh, sensations of the breath uh, in the abdominal area, as an example. Vichara temporarily inhibits the hindrance of doubt in deep states of concentration and to varying degrees weakens doubt overall throughout our ongoing vipassana practice. There are a couple of really wonderful metaphors or similes in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. And here's the one for vitaka. Vitaka is like a bird spreading out its wings to fly. So that initial application. And vichara is like a bird gliding through the air without outstretched wings. So that sustained application. The third factor of mind, piti in Pali, a joy or zest. Now piti is an occasional because only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it wholesome and beautiful. The mental characteristic of PT, it can be quite endearing. And it can be explained as a delight or a positive or pleasurable interest in the object. Its function is to refresh the mind and the body. And it pervades the mind and the body in its initial stages with uh, thrills and sometimes described, which is sometimes described as rapture. Though actually that word rapture really does not uh, at all cover all of the nuances of of PT. So it's classically used. I rarely describe it that way. In its earlier stages... PT often manifests as a mind and a body quality of elation, of gladness, of joy maybe, mirth even, merriment, exultation, exhilaration, and along with often a sense uh, of a, a degree of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five grades of PT. Uh, that are distinguished that can arise when vitaka and when vichara are in place and are perking, perking along in our practice. And as I go through these, I'm sure that uh, some of them will be recognized uh, for some of you as experiences that you uh, that have occurred in your practice to varying degrees. Some of these will be quite familiar, I think. So the first is called minor joy or minor zest. It's able to raise the hairs on the body. Second, momentary joy or momentary zest, like small flashes of lightning in the mind. Next is showering joy or showering zest. And this breaks over the whole body again and again like waves on a seashore. Next is the uplifting joy or uplifting zest. And this can cause the body to feel like it's lifting up or like it's levitating, which I've heard uh, 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 has actually happened, actually occurred for some yogis. And our dear teacher, Sadhu Vivekananda, told a story once that I have permission to tell. Thank you. Um, about a, uh, a foreign yogi. Uh, he was a monk, an ordained uh, monk uh, at a particular uh, monastery in Burma. Um, and he would sit in his room 
and practice on his bed. And, uh, and every day at a certain time, his practice would show up as he would rise up and then fall over. Rise up and fall over. Well, this, <clears throat> I don't know if he was young, but I bet he was kind of young. Because he bragged about it, which is against the rules, actually. But he bragged about it to the other monks. And the other monks wanted to see see this happening. So not only did he brag, and then they expressed their interest, he invited them to come to the window of his room at a certain time <laughs> in the morning when this practice was unfolding, and he, they could watch him through the window. So they did, and he performed. I mean, he practiced, and it happened. And uh, I'm sure he probably felt pride in that. And the other monks enjoyed it, probably, as well. So it, uh, I've never seen it happen, but it seems that it does now and then. So the next one is called pervading joy or pervading zest. And this pervades or it floods the whole mind and body with a very refreshing kind of bright elation. And the Abhidhamma describes this as like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly PT that is experienced much more as a mind state than in the body, has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and mindful attention on the object that happens with the manifestation of jhana, which sometimes also happens with metta practice, PT can temporarily completely inhibit ill will. PT at this point is a mind state. It's not a bodily experience at this point. The fourth of these wholesome mental factors is in Pali Sukha, which is often translated as happiness or a sweet happiness. This uh, state of mind is wholesome and beautiful. It's, a, it's a only, very important, only if there is no identification and no attachment when it's occurring. Consequently, it's called an occasional. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy mental feeling born out of mind contact with the object of attention, such as in our case, the breath sensations in the belly or maybe other, other uh, sensations in other areas. It's also sometimes uh, occurs with metaphrases and uh, in relationship to the object of metta. So sukha is a very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. And so it's explained as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very, very gratifying engendering a very deep sense of gratification. Consequently, it's extremely easy to get attached to. So mindfulness needs to remain very strong and very clear. Sukha counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and the hindrance of worry. Although piti and sukha are closely connected, they're, they're not the same. So I'd like to uh, uh, share just a little bit of uh, the commentary to the Abhidhamma's description of piti and sukha. Uh, 
Piti, joy, sometimes called rapture, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees another and asks, where is water? The other says, soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, the traveler is glad, joyful, and delighted. And then more glad and delighted when they see leaves on the ground and then people with wet clothes and with wet hair and they hear the sounds of wildflower, fowl, wildfowl. And then see the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the lake and see the clear transparent water and water lilies growing in the lake. And then this weary traveler more is more and more joyful glad and delighted. So that's the piti Abhidhamma commentary description. Sukha, ease, sweet happiness, is like the traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. And the commentary describes it like this. This being descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with, with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns himself or herself with lotus flowers, then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lays down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so gently and says, Oh bliss, oh bliss. (laughs) With the sense of ease and sweet happiness grown quite strong, enjoying the taste of the object, as it says in the Abhidhamma commentary. Piti, joy, sukha, the sweet bliss of happiness, are, as I said, they're closely connected, but they're not the same. Piti actually gains prominence before sukha, and it provides uh, a causal foundation for sukha to arise. An important point here in relationship particularly to, in this case, our vipassana practice, if there's attachment, identification, clinging to piti or sukha, They're not beautiful, they're not wholesome states, but they become corruptions, what are called corruptions of insight. Piti and sukha are not inherently corruptions of insight. It's our relationship to their manifestation that can make them become corruptions of insight if we're uh, identified and cling uh, attached to them. They're part of a process that's going on, a developmental process. The fourth of these wholesome mental factors, wait a minute, Fifth, we already did the fourth. Uh, that was sukha. The fifth of these wholesome uh, mental states or mental factors is ikagata in Pali. One pointedness, as it's translated, and this is a universal mental factor, and it literally means a one-pointed state. This mental factor is the primary component. It is the essence of concentration, samatha or samadhi. Be it uh, a momentary concentration or a sustained and potentially absorbed concentration as in jhana concentration. It's also a very important aspect of our vipassana practice. 
in our kanaka samadhi, our momentary concentration, as it is in metta practice, which also requires a developed kanaka samadhi, a momentary concentration. One-pointedness temporarily weakens sensual desire to some degree overall while it's manifesting meditatively. In the deep absorption uh, concentration of the fourth jhana, the development and maturation of ikakata completely temporarily, temporarily, that's an important word, inhibits sensual desire overall. And as I said, ikakata also weakens one's tendency, or I implied it weakens one's tendency towards blindly, habitually being caught in various aspects of sensual desire when there's a maturing capacity for a momentary focus of attention that is accompanied and must be accompanied by a strong mindfulness. Both of which are absolutely necessary conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikakata, one-pointedness, is that one is able to very, very closely contemplate the object. Though it can't uh, perform this function all by itself. It requires the joint or the cooperative action of the other four factors that we've just explored. Each one of them performing its own special function. So vitaka applying the attention with all of the associated, other associated states on the object, vichara, sustaining attention, along with all of the other associated mental states on the object, piti being, bringing a delight and interest uh, in relationship to the object, and sukha, experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So these are the first five wholesome factors of mind that are associated with the development of concentration, metta practice, and most importantly, here and now, in relationship to our insight practice, our vipassana practice. So now we'll go on uh, and look at the other Uh, beneficial factors of mind uh, somewhat more briefly uh, uh, that are associated with our uh, vipassana concentration and metta practice, some of which we've certainly already explored in this retreat, at least to some degree. So the next one is uh, adimoka in Pali, which is decision or resolve or intention. And this is an occasional. As it's wholesome only. Only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. Adimoka literally means the releasing of the mind into the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. And it has the characteristic of conviction and the function of not kind of groping around. It helps to create and to support a clarity of purpose in relationship to engaging in practice. So it manifests as a decisiveness regarding the object of attention, whatever that object might be in any given moment. Its nearest, or we could say its most immediate cause is that, sounds really obvious, it needs something to be convinced about. To connect to and be convinced about. So, for example, in our case here, making a resolve or an intention to give one's complete attention with our vipassana practice, to the rising and falling movement, sensations of the breath in the belly. 
or to other bodily sensations or to mental states. Adimoka has been compared to a stone pillar because of its unshakable resolve regarding the object. The next uh, beneficial state or factor of mind is energy, virya in Pali. And this is another occasional. And it's been talked about a bit already. It's a wholesome state of mind, wholesome only when it's associated with wholesome activity and practice. Virya is the state or the action of of one who's vigorous. Its characteristic is exertion and supporting or mobilizing, or as it says in the Abhidhamma, mobilizing or marshalling uh, in Abhidhamma language. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is a sense of urgency, a sense of spiritual urgency. And it can also be encouraged and also be stimulated by engaging Uh, in an experience that arouses energy, which might be just as simple as taking a a refreshing walk or maybe doing 15 minutes of mindful yoga or maybe mindful tai chi or qigong or some mindful exercise for not too long, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Or really any wholesome activity that stirs or inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, meaning in this case towards energetic practice. The next wholesome factor of mind in this long list (laughs) is wholesome desire. The Pali word is chanda meaning desire to act, the desire to perform or to achieve an action or to achieve a result. So wholesome desire. And this kind of desire uh, needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire that stems from greed and stems from lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. So it can, ver- it can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal, <clears throat> as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken of metaphorically in the Abhidhamma commentaries as this, the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. To me, this is a very beautiful expression and image that says a lot. The stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. Not grabbing for experience. A very important aspect of our practice. So remember, as I go through this list, uh, uh, that each and all of you, uh, that uh, that each and all of these factors, these qualities, these capacities of mind, are developing and blossoming as you continue with your practice. For each of you. So the next group uh, uh, of universal, uh, are universal beautiful factors or states of mind. And you'll recognize some of which we've already explored in this retreat, at least to some degree. And there may be some others that will be explored as the retreat continues. And I'm going to list them and just briefly 
comment, offer a comment on, on some of them. So, beginning with faith. Next, mindfulness, which of course is the overall ground of every single bit of our practice. The next two, hiri otapa, hiri moral shame, otapa moral dread, or fear of wrongdoing. And I'll talk a little bit more about these later in the talk. These are two beautiful mental factors. And these are, as I mentioned, universal. All this whole list are universal mental, beautiful mental factors or universal beautiful states of mind. And these two particular ones, hiri otapa, beautiful mental factors, they're considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection and the functioning of the family, the community, the world, and in relationship to all relationships. So next, non-greed, non-hatred, neutrality of mind, neutrality of heart, which is associated directly with equanimity, Tranquility of mind and heart, which is extensive calmness. Tranquility of consciousness. Lightness of mind and heart, meaning brightness, lightness. The opposite of heaviness, the opposite of sinking of the mind and heart and consciousness. So lightness of consciousness. Malleability of mind and heart, meaning non-rigidity of mind and heart. Very important quality for our practice. Malleability of mind and heart. Malleability of consciousness. Wieldiness of mind and heart. And this means the ability of the mind to go where it needs to go. It's wieldy. Wieldiness of consciousness. Proficiency of mind and heart meaning the clarity and the quickness of the mind and the heart. Proficiency of consciousness. Honesty or uprightness of mind and heart. Honesty and uprightness of consciousness. And again, these are all universal, beautiful factors or universal states of mind. The next four of this list uh, from the Abhidhamma uh, are the divine abidings or the Brahma Viharas which are both beautiful and wholesome. So I'll just list them. Metta, unconditional loving kindness. Karuna, boundless or unconditional compassion. Appreciative or mudita which is appreciative or empathetic joy meaning joy in relationship to others' success and happiness and joy, and upekka, equanimity. So those are the four divine abidings, or the four brahma-viharas, beautiful and wholesome states. There are three more beautiful mental factors that are called the abstinences. And there are three distinct mental factors that the Buddha often spoke about that come about through three different types or three different levels of abstinence. And all three of these are very important for the development of concentration and insight or vipassana practice. So first, there's what's called natural abstinence, meaning abstaining from mental and physical deeds that cause harm to oneself and cause harm to others. When an opportunity arises to engage in them, maybe due to various conditions and due to various particular circumstances, such maybe as one's social position in life or maybe one's age, maybe one's level of education plays into this, or maybe some particular circumstances in one's life at a particular time. 
This natural abstinence is when we naturally abstain from these mental and physical deeds out of our innate wisdom and compassion. So that's the first abstinence. The second abstinence uh, comes about by undertaking the precepts. This commitment to live one's life observing the precepts. Abstaining from killing sentient beings, any sentient beings. Abstaining from harmful speech. Abstaining from stealing. Abstaining from sexual misconduct, harmful sexual activity. Abstaining abstaining from taking intoxicants, substances that cloud the mind. There are, as I'm sure you all know, five precepts for lay practitioners. In our retreat we're taking eight. And then there are many, many more precepts, uh, guidelines, uh, that are set out for um, monastic practitioners. So that's the second abstinence, undertaking the precepts. The third abstinence is called abstinence by eradication, which comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supra-mundane path of the purification of heart the supramundane path of the purification of the mind. The Buddha Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation. So what's eradicated by abstinence, by eradication? What is eradicated is any, any disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. Think about that for a moment. Any disposition, not even a little bit of disposition left towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. That's profound. That's an amazing possibility. Absolutely no inclination to engage in any deeds that cause harm. The first two abstinences that I mentioned are mundane, are considered mundane, are considered common, ordinary in the worldly sense. While this one, this third one, is supramundane, meaning it's not common in the worldly sense, but it's of a spiritually purified nature. So I'd like to explore just a little bit more regarding the uh, two abstinences, the first two abstinence, abstinences of the uh, three beautiful and wholesome abstinences, this undertaking uh, of the precepts. And just look at some more specifics regarding this second abstinence. So beginning with right, what's called right speech. This is a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech, meaning not engaging in false speech, not engaging in slanderous speech or harsh, spe- harsh speech, and lastly, not engaging in frivolous talk. This last one, frivolous talk, Uh, is quite challenging, actually, for most people. If you really take a mindful look at what we talk about, at least some of the time, in our daily life, we might notice how much frivolous chatting or chattering or talking or babbling or whatever you want to call it, we do. It's a hard one. It's subtle. But it's worth taking a look at. The next one is right action. In this case, right action means the deliberate, mindful abstinence from harmful bodily action, such as killing, 
not taking what has not been offered, and classically it's spoken of as stealing. And this can be more and more and more subtly sensed, seen, and known as our practice deepens. And then lastly, abstaining from any harmful or hurtful sexual conduct. And for people taking eight precepts and for monastics, it's the um, abstinence of any sexual conduct. The next one is right livelihood. So this is a deliberate abstinence from wrong livelihood, meaning such as as it's classically spoken of, um, as dealing in poisons and weapons, intoxicants, animals for slaughter, or people being used in unwholesome and harmful ways. We can say that this aspect of right livelihood is regarding abstinence from work that selfish, is selfishly oriented in usury ways regarding other living beings, both human beings and other forms of life. As our practice develops and as it blossoms and as it matures, we touch into deeper and deeper and more and more subtle levels of intuitive understanding in relationship to each of these abstinences, which in turn then offers us guidelines towards living a more and more wholesome and beautiful life. These three abstinences function as a shrinking back, we could say, from harmful deeds and manifest as the abstinence from such such actions, such harmful actions. The closest and the most pertinent cause for this are the special, wholesome, and beautiful qualities of faith and of the shame of engaging in harmful deeds, hiri, and the fear of wrongdoing, otapa. And another pertinent cause for shrinking back from abstaining from harmful actions is living a relatively simple life and having few wants and wishes. And as practitioners, I think it's fair to say that as our practice goes on over the years and it develops and it blossoms, it becomes a very natural process of inclining towards living a more simple life and having fewer wants and wishes in our life. We could say that all three of these beautiful and wholesome mental factors can be regarded as the minds, as the hearts, wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. The last of the long list of wholesome and beautiful mental factors, wholesome and beautiful mental states uh, that are developing throughout our practice is non-delusion. And this is the wisdom faculty. The wholesome and beautiful mental factor of intuitive understanding, intuitive insight, which is really the essence of our path of practice. As we connect and sense and see and know more and more often and more and more deeply with the three universal characteristics of all phenomena, the constantly changing, impermanent anicca characteristic, the unsatisfactory or dukkha as it's usually called nature of all phenomena, 
because of its constant changing and impermanent nature and the not-self, not-permanent, not-static or non-solid, non-independent, always in process, always in constant flux nature of all physical and mental phenomena. As we connect with these three characteristics, these three universal characteristics of all phenomena, and we connect more deeply and more clearly with these, liberation of mind and heart are close at hand. The writer Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with a heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice experience as mindfulness, concentration, and insight, wisdom, and metta continue to blossom is that knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring. With that, we have the opportunity. With that, we have the possibility to see, recognize, and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other aversive reactions and without misunderstandings and without misinterpretations, but rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is very uh, very closely related to equanimity, which is what allows the continuing development of our practice to keep unfolding, blossoming, and bearing fruit. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these wholesome and beautiful qualities, these wholesome and beautiful capacities are the capacities or the qualities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. As we come towards the end of the talk this evening, I'd like to offer you some advice from Robert Piercig. You may not know who Robert Piercig is. Maybe you do know who Robert Piercig is. Robert Piercig wrote a book many years ago called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It was one of my first Dhamma books long ago. And certainly many of you in this room are old enough that you may also have read this book. I see some shaking of a head. If you haven't, you might pick it up sometime. It's an interesting book, inspiring. And this, is, uh, this section is called Peace of Mind, From Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Piercig. So the thing to do when you're working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce works which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. In closing the talk this evening with some words from the 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master, Atisha. The greatest achievement 
is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.